All right. Well, how is everybody? Were you guys blessed last week? Yeah. Would you be surprised if we tell you that we have some more things for you tonight? Tonight's title is Repentance, Residence, and Reality. Yeah. And we're going to be covering chapter six. I'm forewarning you, we're going to spend a large portion of our budgeted time in the very first verse this evening. Now, if you remember the things that you learned on Monday and the way that it affected your walk, give us your attention for that one verse. I promise it will change the way that you read the rest of the entire chapter and it is worth getting it. There are good things that are in store for us tonight. You guys excited? Yeah. yeah. Hey, is Marlon here tonight? Will you pray for us, brother? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into the text. So we get our faithful reader of the squell. Renton, you're going to have to fulfill both roles tonight. Chapter <laughs> 6. Then Solomon said, The Lord had said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who is with his hands, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple for my name to be there. Nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. Amen. And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept his promise. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have, I have succeeded David, my father, and I now sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed in it had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform. Then he knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your 
promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep, your, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises that you made him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears as the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. Amen. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this, this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Your people Israel, teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people a poor inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of its afflictions and pains, and spread, spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and do each man according to all he does, since you know what is, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of men, so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards this city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their, their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, 
and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity, where they were taken, and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and please and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of yeah. your light. Amen. May your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Yes. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love Man, what an incredible chapter, huh? Yeah. You know, this chapter is especially incredible when you remember what we taught last week. Can anybody tell me shortly what we taught on last week? The tabernacle being swallowed up in the temple. Hey, does anybody remember what we taught about in chapter 2? Something to do with God's focal points? Places where God's name dwells. You ought to go back and review those notes because you're going to see tonight that there are so many things that are fulfilled in this chapter and so many things are foreshadowed in this chapter. It's unreal. Mm. We're going to go through tonight and tonight is largely consisted of Solomon praying. Next week will be God's answer to Solomon's prayer. And that's going to be very exciting. See, these are all connecting in a way that's special and you're going to get something tonight that will build on what we covered last week. Amen. So with that being said, Linton, would you read verse 1 again? Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Man, the Lord said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. You know, last week we saw that the cloud filled the temple. After everything was performed, there was a cloud that filled the temple and the priests could not perform their duty. It happened after the priests consecrated themselves. You remember that? Regardless of their divisions, they consecrated themselves. And God showed up in that cloud. You know, when you see the dark cloud in Scripture, this is how God always inaugurates his determined focal points in the Jewish story. And you'll see how that, you'll see that that's how he inaugurates his focal points in your life as well. Amen. In Exodus 19, he descends on Mount Sinai in a dark cloud. And the people must consecrate themselves to receive the Torah. In Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covers the tabernacle. Didn't fill it, but it covers the tabernacle that Moses builds, and Moses couldn't enter it. You start to see a pattern form here. Solomon is aware of the promises that God has given to his people Israel. He's going to go on to recount some of them. But this dark cloud language is intended to draw to mind the first time that God established this covenant. Mm -hmm. Solomon is recognizing the magnitude of what is about to happen, that it is an expanded and magnified version of what God gave Moses. You don't usually even hear the words Moses and Solomon in the same sentence, but what God is about to do here is everything that was done at Sinai plus some. Solomon has recognized that in the time between Moses and now, we've had some serious deficiencies. We have the entire time frame of the judges in the entire reign of Saul. And he's recounting the original promise, the original time that that cloud 
had come upon Israel and something was established for eternity that never would move. His prayer as recorded in this chapter is him asking for a more permanent, somebody say permanent, permanent permanent solution, knowing that sin and rebellion often cause God's glory to depart. Anybody remember the story of Eli? The term Ichabod, that the glory has departed? Well, Solomon knows that story, and he is asking that God might do something that would be everlasting for his people. Listen, the word dwell in English, it conveys the idea of a presence or locality. But in Hebrew and in Greek words, behind our translation, it contains an awful lot more. We want to take a look at that with you so that we can gain a better understanding of what Solomon is about to pray about. Would you guys like to see a slide? So in this first verse, we have Solomon saying, Lord, you said that you would dwell in the dark cloud. That Hebrew word is shakan, and it means to reside or permanently stay. So this is not just a figurative dwelling. This is a place of permanent dwelling. And Solomon's saying, look, Lord, you said that you would dwell in the cloud. He's not saying, look, you're going to dwell in the cloud for a certain time. He's saying, look, Lord, you said you're going to dwell in the cloud permanently. This word shakan carries the meaning to permanently stay somewhere. It denotes geographic location. We do want to admit that. It does denote that a specific location would be where something would dwell. But it also denotes the intended nature of something. So think about that. Solomon's thinking of the cloud in the past. And that cloud had a period because of the Israelites' sin to be departed. The glory has departed. But this word shikan that the writers use in Hebrew... It's intended to say that this cloud would eventually be permanent and that it wouldn't go anywhere. Hey, let's look at this in a lexicon. Strong's is a concordance. We want to pull it up in a lexicon to see what they say. Shekan. You see in the first highlighted portion it says to dwell or abide. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? That's what the English translators use, dwell. Look at the next section. The word is used in this way. In Deuteronomy 12 and Psalm 78 to describe how God set up a dwelling place for his name, establishing himself in Israel. We said this, the word can mean to dwell in a certain spot on the globe, and that is absolutely true. But it can also mean for something to rest in a place and never be moved. When it is speaking about the tabernacle in Psalm 78 and many other places, when it's speaking about the cloud or the temple in Deuteronomy 12, It always carries, listen, it always carries the permanent connotation. Now you need to think about that because what was permanent about the tabernacle? Come on. What was permanent about the tabernacle? We've been teaching that it is a mobile, temporary dwelling place, right? And yet the Hebrew word says that God's name would dwell there and it was intended to be a permanent dwelling. It implies that even though the tabernacle was temporary, it was to house The permanent glory. That glory was not temporary, was it? No, No, it was permanent. The tabernacle might have been temporary, or so most scholars think. It was to house the permanent glory, the permanent name, and the permanent presence of God. Those things are not temporary. Those are permanent. This shows us, listen to this, this shows us that temporary objects that contain the Hashem, the Kavod, and the Shekinah 
would themselves be made permanent. Now, you guys know what you learned last week, right? You know where we're getting with this. Look, same review. Putting together the pieces from multiple lexicons. Shikan, our Hebrew word here, carries the connotation of geographic locality. So where we're dwelling, just like you would think in English. It also denotes the nature of the visit. How long he intends to stay. I dwelt at Matthew's house for a Sunday afternoon. That's not the same thing as saying I am permanently living at Matthew's house. Do you understand? Not a hobo. This specific word that Solomon is using, that word means I intend to stay and stay forever. Yeah. In addition to that, it also tells you about the name or the character of the one that is dwelling there. It is associated with his presence and who he is. So when he's dwelling there, it's speaking a message about his immovability and where I'm going to be. It's speaking a message about the one who is there and what he is like for the whole world to see. And that he is not ever going to be moved from this. This word builds a kind of picture. When a Hebrew speaker is looking at it, they understand that there's more to it than just a placeholder. We're talking about the type of visit. What kind of God is at the visit. And what he intends to do for Israel when Solomon is inviting him to dwell in this way. By the way, the word Shekhan is related to Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is the noun form of the verb. So to dwell, and the Mishkan is where he is dwelling. It's a noun. It's fairly simple when you consider that the syllables and the Hebrew letters... It's just a small change. You will look at it in your Bible or in a Strong's, and then it will be a different Strong's number. But when you remember it's the exact same word, you're just adding on to it for a noun versus the verb. I'm going to dwell in this place, and it's a deed, it's an action, and that's what Solomon's inviting God to do in this moment. But when he has done it, and it's permanently there, it becomes the noun mishkan. Hey, the word shikan, is it temporary or permanent? It means permanent dwelling. So the word mishkan doesn't mean that it's an old tabernacle that will be replaced. You're reading a commentary and says that this old thing was to be thrown away and a new temple was coming. That's absolutely not true. The word mishkan itself means that that tent, which looked very temporary, was going to become permanent. Do you want to see this again in Vine's expository? I know you guys love these lexicons, right? All right, let's see it in Vine's. So the Septuagint version of the Old Testament uses a great number of Greek words to translate yeshab and shikan. Now the word yeshab is another Hebrew word that means to dwell somewhere. But most often than not, when you yeshab somewhere, you're just staying for a short time. You're not determined to stay there forever. On the other hand, shikan always means permanent. So in the Greek, we have a few cognates. One word Ketoakim is used by far more often than any other. This word also expresses the New Testament for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church. And that's interesting because the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church is not permanent. Revelation is all full of letters where God says, I will remove your lampstand. That is not a permanent thing, but there is something that is permanent. Look at the highlighted portion. It says the book of Hebrews compares the tabernacle sacrifices of Israel in the wilderness with the sacrifice of Jesus at the true tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell, and it gives you the cognate right there, skinning, he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, 
and God himself shall be with them and their God. Man, Revelation 21 is talking about a day where God would permanently dwell. He will permanently tabernacle. He will permanently shikan amongst them. Man, there's another word in Hebrew, and that's yeshab, and that is not what we're talking about. In regards to Hashem, we want to think of another word, Shekinah. That's also a derivative of Shekinah. That's interesting, isn't it? In regards to the Hashem, the Shekinah, and the Kavod, Shekinah is used, and the Greek cognate is the word skinin. That is the Hmm. Greek 4633. By the way, what were most tents made out of? Skin. Skin. That's a good way to help you remember that word. We have a slide we want to show you. What that means in the Greek, just the Greek definition. All right. So our cognate in Greek that most directly relates. Anytime you're going from different languages, you have different choices. Somebody like Baj would show you when you're most accurately trying to describe in Greek this Hebrew concept, the word that they chose, the writers of the gospel, the writer of Hebrews, seen it. A tent or cloth hut. Think on that for just a moment. This becomes really interesting when this tent or cloth hut that is often translated a habitation, a tabernacle, or a tent in Hebrew and in its roots has the connotation of being a permanent dwelling that is also marked with God's name. Man, sounds a little bit like jars of clay to me. Hey, we want to talk to you in a couple areas in the New Testament and show you how the writers of the gospel use this very word. Does that sound like a plan to you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hand out some scriptures, and we're going to work through it together. Paulie, get John 1, 14 for me. Nick Rosales, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Assad, Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. Marlin, Hebrews 8, verse 5. Cody, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. And we're going to hand out a few more after we work through Hebrews. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, come on now. Some translations say tabernacled. You know why? Because it's the Greek word that means tent. Or hut. Hut. But it's in a verb sense. Just like what we were looking at in the Older Testament, it's tabernacling. It's becoming flesh. Almost like something divine that was intended to be permanent, that was of God, that represented His name and His character, was suddenly wrapped in an unimpressive hut. You know, John's an interesting guy. His works cover so much throughout the Word. John 1.1 opens up with the very creation And then when he wants to introduce to you Jesus the Christ, he tells you that he was tabernacled among us. That something that was permanent, that was eternal, had been made manifest, but it was not permanent in its flesh and its outer housing. He was in a temporary tent, just like the tabernacle of Moses. But his tent was destined to be swallowed up and become more permanent as the firstborn of the dead. John connects the revelations that we see from Genesis to Chronicles all the way through his epistles into the book of Revelation, he presents Jesus Christ with the kind of mindset involved that is one that is looking at the original promises. 
He's explaining to us that this first coming of Jesus is much like the first manifestation of God's presence on the earth. That Jesus is like the tabernacle, but there is more to come. That something needs to be clothed in what is permanent. And he introduces his gospel this way in the first 14 verses by starting with Genesis and moving to the tabernacle. I bet there's a message for us in that outer housing. Do you think there is one, church? Hey, who's got Hebrews 5? Man, read verse 9 again because it is just so good. You hear that? And once made perfect. Isn't it interesting that when they're writing, when they're translating what Jesus did, when He came down in His flesh, He tabernacled amongst us. He skinned amongst us. He shakan amongst us. Now was Jesus in a permanent dwelling at that moment? No. Was Jesus coming down to earth to stay in a temporary dwelling? Well, of course not. Nobody denies that. The question is, is he became perfect. Well, how did he become perfect? How did he become the temple that he was supposed to be? He became the temple that he was supposed to be because he was obedient through what he suffered. He obeyed what God's word was for him, even though it caused him suffering. Jesus was in a temporary tent. But he was like the Mishkan, and he had the Hashem and the Kavod. He had the Shekinah inside of him. He was like the tabernacle. He was temporary on the outside, but he held inside of him permanent things. He was also in the midst of wicked men. Can you imagine a tabernacle in the midst of wicked men? (laughs) That'll make you laugh. That's the entire book of Judges. He was in the midst of wicked men, and he was there to make atonement for them. As he suffered and was obedient, he and the people became holy together. Man, there's some, there's some beautiful things that we're going to get into, but hey, do you get more holy when the, the tabernacle gets swallowed up in the temple? Yeah, of course, because it expands, it gets greater. The temple literally swallowed up Jesus' tabernacle. Come on. When he was resurrected from the dead, the permanent swallowed the impermanent. We must go through the same process just like Jesus and just like the Mishkan. That is how the temple swallows up the tabernacle. That is how Jesus inherited uh, resurrection power, and that is how we do it as well. I just want to show you a few more times in the book of Hebrews where this word occurs. Who's got Hebrews 8? 1. Man, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. But remember, wait, there's a temple in the heavens. Or is it a tabernacle? Yes. Not only was Jesus made perfect, but also the tabernacle was made perfect itself. It was always intended to be perfected, not replaced. Who's got Hebrews 8.5?
when you when when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make that you make everything according to the pattern shown shown, uh, shown you on the on the mountain. And you guys heard last week how important that pattern was, right? Yeah. I mean, if those dimensions were just a little bit off, it wouldn't have worked. Right. And God always intended for the tabernacle to be swallowed up by the permanent temple. Amen. That pattern is important. And you know what the pattern is for us if we want to become permanent? We have got to walk in a holy life and we've got to walk through suffering. Amen. Who's got Hebrews 9, 11 through 12? When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Come on, saints, think about this for a moment. If Christ himself had to be perfected to reach the glory that was to come, so that we might have an opportunity to follow inside of his own footsteps. There's a little hint. It's what you would call a sowed, or someone else might call a romance. Solomon begins by crying out after all of this work and building this temple, asking for a tabernacle to come down, just like John presents that Jesus was. John opens by saying, He has tabernacled among us. And the prayer that we're about to get into is a man who has worked and worked and built something that is magnificent, and he says so. But he knows it's wholly insufficient. And he's asking that God himself might come down and tabernacle. He's asking for a permanent solution to sin because he knows he doesn't have one just yet. There's also another problem in this whole mix. Our God is a holy God. He is wonderful. He is magnificent. His temple upon the earth has to be consecrated, has to be set up a certain way. But Solomon knows good and well his people are not holy. He knows good and well they are perishable. He knows that they are not like him. So how is it that a holy God can dwell with unholy people? There's a question that is going to ring through the entire chapter this evening. It's one that has been ringing through our own worship services and prophecies. It's been ringing through our sermons. Our God is calling something to our attention because he wishes to be able to dwell with us. Would you like to know how to become holy so that you can dwell with him? Yes. I'm going to hand out a few verses. I'm going to read Matthew 17, verse 4 to you, and Justin will comment on it. Then some lucky guy is going to get Revelation 21, 3. Pastor Matt, that seems fitting. Amen. Luke 16, 9, JJ. Genesis 3, 24, Andrew Hayes. Genesis 9, 27, Rob. Genesis 16, 12, Timo. Genesis 25, 17 through 18, Gabriel Sutherland. Exodus 25, 8 through 9, Spencer. Exodus 29, 44 through 46, Caleb. Exodus 40, 34 through 35, Linton. Second Chronicles 6, actually we'll hold on on that one. You can start, we'll pick up in Matthew 17, 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, 
If you wish, Lord, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what we've shown you through Hebrews and all of the passages before that, we have shown you all of the New Testament instances where the word skinning shows up. Not all of them, but some of them. And all of those have been permanent, right? When we're talking about the more perfect tabernacle in the heavens, that's not temporary, is it? No. Come on, answer. That's not te temporary, is it? No, that's permanent. Well, you start to see some of the forms of the word show up in other areas, and you have to wonder if that word's always used to mean permanent, right? I mean, surely when Peter's saying that he wants to set up three shelters, he's not talking about permanent shelters, right? How could he do that? Well, if you look a little closer, Peter's closer than we thought here. Some of us have read this passage and we're like, Peter, you're just being foolish. You're just being crazy. You're sitting there with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and you want to build something, man. Why don't you just sit there like Mary and learn at their feet? But the more we study this word, you see Peter might have been closer to the truth than many of our theologians. You see, Peter was told by Jesus that they would dwell together in the future forever. He was told by Jesus that we will dwell, I will be with you for the ages to come. He was told also that in three days he would see Jesus revealed in his glory, surrounded by a cloud. Well, where are they? They're surrounded by a cloud, and Jesus is being glorified. Oh, come on. Consider also what he's seeing. He's seeing Moses, which represents the law. He's seeing Elijah, which represents the prophets. And they're conversing with the living Ketuvim, that is Jesus Christ. And they are all in one spot. So do you think perhaps Peter might have been on to something? Maybe perhaps he might have seen Jesus and said, you know what? There's going to be some permanent dwellings coming and I better start now. Perhaps he was asking for Revelation 21 verse 3 to come in that moment. You know, maybe he was saying, hey, I'll build a lean-to. Or maybe he was asking the embodied word of God if it was possible that he could remain in this state yeah. where everything from the law, prophets, and writings was suddenly dwelling in one on the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Hey, Pastor. By the way, that word shelters is skinning. You think Peter knew the Hebrew word behind that? Shikan, permanent? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think he said it in Greek originally. <laughs> Pastor. Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Saints, we've been learning. We've been learning about the tabernacle being swallowed up, about David's tent being swallowed up, that everything that was in the heavens and a reflection on earth was built, that it would be brought into unity in one place. Yeah. And that in the end, heaven and earth would come. Well, there's a time coming where all three are going to merge on earth with us and in us. We learned about this a few weeks back. Talked about these three dwellings, but there's also three parts of a man. There's a heart, there's a soul, there's a strength. You know that the law, prophets, and writings were designed to incline it. It's almost as if your temporary body needs to become permanent. Yeah. But we have to become a holy entity for this. Yeah. We cannot stay the way that we are and be permanent. God put in place what was needed to facilitate that transformation. Peter's excited about the three dwellings, both every area of the word, every area that should be addressing the human condition, your mind, will, emotions, heart, and strength, and that he sees something that is glorified, that is no longer subject to death, all in one location. 
Saints, we have to ask ourselves when we read a passage like this and we immediately assume, hey, those dumb disciples. Well, what if Peter was familiar with the Mishkan? What if Peter had grown up in Israel and his expectation was the biblical worldview? Come on. What if he understood Deuteronomy 32 better than we do? And he saw something aligning that he had never seen before. In fact, that no one had ever seen before. That he remembered Solomon was praying might happen one day in Israel with his people. Peter is seeing a shadow of something that is coming that is going to be glorious. The tent that is perishable is becoming something that is permanent. Solomon is going to cry out for this this evening. Who has Luke 16? Now, why did we put that verse there? You know, Judah presented a problem earlier. You see, it was spoken by God that he would have a shikan, that he would shikan in a mishkan. And that was definitely a permanent thing. But the problem always has been, how can God dwell, and Solomon's going to say this, will God really dwell on earth? Well, it's kind of hard to tell. Because when you have a holy God, how can he dwell there permanently if he's surrounded by so much rebellion and sin? I mean, he tried with the temple, right? But it was destroyed by wicked men and because of wicked men. The problem always is, is there's a holy God that wants to dwell amongst his people, but he can't fully do it yet because he's surrounded by temporal, fleshly dwellings. Look at this passage here. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it is gone, you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Man, Peter wanted to build those permanent shelters. But he had to start with himself first. He had to start with his own temporary dwelling and have it become made permanent through repentance and the Holy Spirit working in him. In Luke 16, that word eternal dwellings is skene. You may enter into permanent dwellings. That's the same Greek word. Man, we're temporal now, aren't we? But we're destined to be swallowed by the permanent like Moses' tabernacle was and like Jesus' tabernacle was. But how do we enter into a permanent holy state with a holy God like Jesus and the tabernacle did? How do we do that? We use everything at our disposal for his kingdom. It's talking about wealth in this chapter, but it's safe to say it's whatever you have to do. Use it so that you can enter and be welcomed into your eternal dwellings. Come on. We do anything and everything to become holy. Church, it's on our walls. Get holy or die trying. Holiness is everything. Without holiness, you cannot see the Lord. If you don't have holiness, you'll never inherit your permanent state. We have to do anything and everything to become holy. This starts in our earnestness and results in how We use what we have at our disposal to run for holiness. That's how we enter in. Who's got... Now, we're going to get into the Older Testament, just in case you think this is a Newer Testament concept. We're going to show you the word shikan over and over again. Who's got Genesis 3.24? After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way Now, when I first read this verse, I thought, you know, God just put like a little Christmas ornament there so he could pick it up again. That word placed is shikan. This 
could be or should be translated dwelled eternally. He, it could be said that after he drove the man out, he dwelled eternally on the east side of the garden. Well, you ask, why was there cherubim there? Tell me what God is enthroned on and I'll, you'll know the answer. It is perhaps that God dwelled on the east side of the garden permanently. He dwells there to guard the way back so that we can be made holy before we are swallowed up. Come on. Now, he could be dwelling there so that we don't get swallowed up by judgment, or he could be dwelling there to show us the way back so that we can be swallowed by holiness and able to enter back into Eden. Now, remember, the word shakan in Hebrew, it does not just mean locality. The Garden of Eden is absolutely a real place that existed. And his throne was placed there in a way that is physically tangible. You could see the flashing sword. You could see the cherubim. But it doesn't just mean locality. It means that it intends to be permanent, eternal, everlasting, and that it represents his name, or a dynamic translation, his character. The character of the God in Genesis 3 is the same one that died for your sins. His character and his name was placed there speaking a message saying that I will redeem them. I will make them holy. I will bring them back to the tree of life. And we get to it in the book of Revelation. His character and his name were set there as an eternal, everlasting statement that this will not be permanent. But you know what will? My presence, and I'm going to bring you into it. This is much like the parable where we have a prodigal son and a fantastic father that is a representation of Christ. He's standing on the porch. He's standing on the east side of his home where God and man used to dwell together and with an immutable character, with a strength that does not go away, with a love that is more intense than what we can conjure. He's saying, I'm waiting for the day that my son can come home. The one thing that is standing between us and that day is your sin and unholiness. But he's laid out a path for us to become a holy people. I want to be those holy people. Who has Genesis 9, 27? May God extend the territory of Jacob. May Jacob live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. Hey, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration? How many parts of a man are there? There are three sons of Noah that all men descend from. There are 70 nations that form out of it. But shortly in our story, After us being separated, God raises up a righteous man and preserves the human race. And the desire of Japheth was that he would dwell with, live with, Shekan with the descendants of Shem. That all three parts of our humanity, regardless of where we came from, whether it's Colombia or Norway, that everyone might dwell in the tents of Shem, a permanent dwelling. One that has become holy and free of sin that represents his character and his name. It's speaking a message about what would come in the first few chapters of Genesis. It's not an endless genealogy. It's your great-grandfather that he's saying, you will come into the tents of Shem. I will make it your desire and I will cause it to happen. He never intended for his sons and daughters to be left in unholiness. And he also will not tolerate them staying in unholiness. He has provided a pathway by shikaning with his people, by shikaning with his tabernacled flesh, by shikaning with him, and it will provide the redemption that we need. Hey, salvation is first for who? Jews. Jews. The descendants of Shem. In fact, the specific family that he pointed out. 
It was hinting at what would come through Israel long before Israel ever existed. And us, the Japhethites, the rest of the Shemites, the Hamites, we get included along with Shem and his sons. Come on. Only by dwelling alongside with them. Who's got Genesis 16? Man, he will shikan in hostility toward all his brothers. He will shikan in hostility. So you see that shikan clearly is not just a place of residence, but it could also be a manner of living. Man, when God says he's going to shikan on the earth, did that just mean he's going to sit on the earth and do nothing? No. no, it means his representation, his character, his name is going to dwell there, and it's going to show something to the world. It's not just a place of residence, but it is a manner of living. When these men shikan there, how did they shikan? In hostility toward all their brothers. It is more than a locality. It's a permanent way of life. This is not just about where you are sitting, not about where you go to church, not about where you do life at or where you do your fellowship at. It is also about how you shikan. How you dwell permanently. And guess what? This was so important. It passed on generationally, didn't it? The way that they shikan passed on generationally to their kids. And you will pass on generationally on how you shikan as well. If it is your goal to be swallowed up in the permanent, to be swallowed up in holiness, your kids will pick up on the same theme. And they will be the ones building the temple. Who's got 2517? All right, somebody say that's old. That's old. 137 years of hostility. Keep reading. Oh, you're telling me sons and grandsons and grandsons shikhaned in hostility as well? Man, I'm noticing a theme here. Whether good or bad, it is a way of life. Saints, I want to help you here. Think about our running definition. It's a locality. It's a place. It's a very real, tangible request by Solomon. Lord, come here to this place. But don't just come here for a little while. Come here eternally. Make it a permanent dwelling. And make your name, your character rest here. Let your way of life rest here. We don't want to just see you, be near you. I know that we need to become like you to be able to carry this thing out. Man, that's a prayer that God will answer. Lord, I want you to be here, but not just bless me. Change me. Cause me to become like you. Help me to live like you have called me to live in your house. Solomon is not just asking for the Spirit to show up because it's a novelty or because it makes him feel better like Saul. He's asking that the body of work, the representation of God might come to his very people. Who has Exodus 25? Man, they were going to make a sanctuary. They were going to make a mishkan. And God said, I will shikan among them. Look, this is what God wanted to pass on. We talked about focal points being the place God chooses for His name, His character, His body of work, His attributes to dwell. This is what God wanted to pass on. 
He wanted to dwell among them because he wanted a people who would pattern their existence after him and he could live among them. He wanted to dwell in a place permanently that was surrounded by flesh and temporary dwellings. He wanted to dwell in a place where he could settle down forever and he can begin to change the environment around him. Starting in the very tabernacle he was placed in, he would make that permanent, but he would also make everything else holy around him. That is good news, isn't it? Instead of awaiting the return outside the Garden of Eden, God is making his dwelling among them and transforming the earth into Eden. This is what God does. He starts with the focal point. He places his permanent name there and shikans amongst them. And then he begins to change everything else around him so that it is like the Garden of Eden. This is like Isaiah 51 verse 3. Who's got it? Did we hand that out? No. No. I'll read it. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the sound of singing. You see, we are being made holy. The land is being made holy. The people are being made holy because God is shikaning amongst us. We are being made holy. In Hebrews, just like the tabernacle, Jesus Christ is making it holy. And then he's going to make all the priesthood holy with us. This also reminds us of Isaiah 9. About the increase of God's government. It will never end because it is always expanding and expanding. Just like the temple expands everything about the tabernacle. So does God's shikan amongst the people. When God dwells in a place. And I'm going to ask you, does God dwell in this house tonight? When he dwells in a house like this, you can see it because the people are becoming permanent. Because the people are becoming holy. And they are being carried to their permanent dwelling. Are you being carried tonight? Who's got Exodus 29 verse 44? I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Oh, come on. So we have a representation on earth, a shikan on earth of his glory, of his permanentness, of his eternal state and his character. And he wants men to work in his temple. To be a representation to the world around. The very first thing that is required is that we are consecrated. Saints, we've heard so many sermons about being consecrated. We've heard so many sermons about holiness. But what does it actually mean to walk in it? It's a way of life we learn from Genesis. God is calling us to be the priest. God is calling us to be the men that we have preached about in this house. Read verse 45 for me through 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Saints, there's an amazing truth that ought to bring hope to everyone in this room. That when he chooses to tabernacle and create his own Eden, in John 1, when he chooses to tabernacle and create his own Eden, he's able to make his men holy. That he has been with them. That he brought them out of Egypt. That he might shikan among them. And he says, I am their God. Our God is in the business of taking those that are not holy, but are faithful, that are willing to fight, that are willing to try, and he will consecrate you himself. He will make you holy in this house that you might be the representation of God upon the earth. Listen, Levi 
Aaron, Moses, their grandfather, great-great-grandfather. He was a murderous sinner. He was not a good guy. He had the power of Christ at work in his life and the testimony of Joseph that helped lead him in the right direction. But they were murderers who contemplated sin, who thought about how they were going to complete sin. Not in a moment of anger, but planned it out well. Listen to me, that's dangerous. But because they continued to press into Christ and did not stay as they were, they became men who were consecrated. First with the sword, then learning it to do it with the law of God that is a living sword, that is double-edged, that splits marrow and bone. Listen, all too often we hear preaching about the holiness of God. I want you to understand the holiness of God tonight so that it might begin to transform you. If we have an eagerness that is not short but is everlasting, that represents what we are to become, a permanent eagerness, that we are cultivating something, that we don't mind taking three days to work on a singular subject till we get it right. It might just be that our God will make us holy in this house. Who has Exodus 40? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Man, the cloud covered, the cloud settled upon it. Those are all words for Shekan. The Lord Shekan among them, and they got to behold his glory. Do you hear John 1.14 in that? Yes. He tabernacled amongst us. That which we've seen, that which we've held with our hands, and we beheld His glory. Man, the Lord will absolutely dwell amongst the people, and He will make them holy Himself. You ought to consider if you're still here tonight, and everybody say, I'm still here. I'm still here. You're still here because He is still making you holy. Holiness is not something you conjure up on your own. Holiness is not something that you you just make up in your own life. Holiness is something that you respond to and God forms it in you. Come on. You respond to the conviction that God is shekaning in your heart. And He will make you holy. You may mess up tomorrow. You may mess up the next day. But as long as you're righteous and pick yourself up, He will make you holy. As long as you confess your sins to one another, He is faithful and just and will forgive. Look, the Lord shekaned among them and they beheld His glory. In Chronicles, it entered the temple. In Revelation 21, what is to come? Literally, he himself is shikaning on earth with men. It is always progressing. Holiness is always growing in you. It never stops unless you decide to make it stop. But if you're committed to the process, no matter how much it hurts, if you say, I want holiness no matter what, even though I mess up, even though I'm the worst sinner, Even though I am the worst among my people and the apostles, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and He is making me into a permanent dwelling. Saints, the presence of God was on the tent of meeting. It settled upon it. It covered it. It was around it. But as we're getting to the permanent temple, it fills it inside and out. There is nowhere that is not covered in it. Come on. Saints, this is what we have tasted of, but is going to come in its fullness in the days ahead. Every day now that we act in accordance to His name, to His character, to His way of life, it's a testimony about our hope and what is to come. The point here is that God was showing us that something better was in store for us. And even in this moment, Solomon knew it wasn't enough. 
And he's going to go ahead to explain that and ask God to help us with it. Yeah. We, we have experienced something that is glorious, yeah. but it is not the permanent solution. And it is not all that we will need. We are in a process that we must press forward in, that we must wake up to and realize that we don't have time to toy around with. Come on. Yeah. Brother Linton, will you pick up in verse 1 for us and read through 4? Then Solomon said, <laughs> We weren't here. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed him. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. Oh, come on. That he might dwell forever. Look, this is speaking about generational holiness. He understands that there's a way of life that's been passed down. Now, it's interesting. He says that it has been fulfilled by his hands. Well, that was workers. That was Israelite craftsmen. That was foremen. And yet God's hands did it. Listen, there is a message in our work in God's holiness. He is holy in and of himself. But our work is what shows him to be holy among the nations. Or doesn't, depending on how we're relating to his commands. But it's interesting to note that he says that it was for David. Everything that had been completed was for David. You have to remember David is in the great cloud of witnesses. That he's in the fully manifested Shekinah of God. And that he's also watching what happens upon the earth. There are great men of faith that have gone before us that are watching what you do with the work now. Whether or not we make God's name holy through our deeds, through our actions, we have a special treasure. Nobody else can fulfill your father's promises. Only you get to do that. And I promise, when you honor your father and mother, it will go well with you. <laughs> do not honor your father and mother, and you will see what happens in your children. Hey, Linton, keep it, pick up and keep reading through 6. For he said, since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there. You hear the association with his name and his dwelling? Keep going. Nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader of, over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. Again, he's recounting these promises. But I want you to pick up on the fact that like in Revelation 21, we're merging all of these things. Heaven and earth are happening. We've cited promises and had imagery that's from Moses' time, that is from Genesis, that is from David, each of these covenants that played out in the Word, that he recognizes something is coming together. It's almost like Russian dolls. We have each of these things just getting further and further collapsed. There is none of the old promises that are going away. They're merging into one. From Genesis 3, when we fell, and God standing there with his presence near the way of life, all the way through Moses, all the way through David, up to this very moment. And Solomon recognizes it and still knows there's more to come. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to read to you Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. Amen. Amen. I live a shakan in a high and holy place. Man, I thought his dwelling was about to be on the earth, though, huh? But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Saints, swallowed up 
That comes by being earnest. That comes by being repentant. That comes by being holy. Our God is high. He is lofty. He is holy. And he is also willing to dwell with those that are contrite. Saints, being contrite is not worldly sorrow. Being contrite is the biblical definition of a man who is pliable before God and wants to do what is right and according to his word. His tabernacle is on the way. And he is with us for the very purpose of making us holy so that we might be a testimony to the world around. You know for certain that you're participating in Christ when you're more holy tomorrow than you were today. You have no certainty that you're in Christ if you're not more holy than you were yesterday. This is Christ's purpose on the earth that he might destroy the devil's work first and foremost in our own very lives. It is coming and it will come. You're starting to see all this stream together by now? You see as the same path that the tabernacle went on to become a permanent dwelling, the same path that Jesus dwelt in a tabernacle and yet he became a permanent dwelling is the same path that all of you will go on provided that you walk in holiness. We all want to get to Revelation 21, right? We all want to be built into that temple, right? Then to merge with the other two, to merge with that permanent dwelling, to merge with your permanent Savior, you're going to have to go on the same path. Look, he lives in a high and lofty place, but he also dwells with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Man, that looks like your desire being formed in earnestness out of you to serve the living God and come after him. Your desire is of utmost importance tonight. If we do not have the produce of repentance, it is because we do not have the desire. If you do not have earnestness working its way in your life, earnestness to do what he tells you to become holy, it's because you you don't have a desire to repent. Look, the promise is, is that he dwells with those who are lowly, He dwells with those who are humble, but you've got to have the desire to be earnest to be that. You have to have the desire to to lower yourself and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you, and no matter what the cost, and you know what that really is? That is godly sorrow. And you know what that produces? That is that earnestness that you heard about yesterday. You see people who don't have earnestness, they don't have a desire to repent. They may say, look, I, I don't really feel like that's the problem. If you would look at what that person did to me, not how I responded. You see, that's not the issue. It's just that there's a lack of desire to repent. Now listen, we've got to keep moving, but it's worth noting that if there's an issue that you're unwilling to address, unwilling to progress in, or that you're too prideful to see is a problem, no matter what you say with your mouth, you're speaking to the living, holy, lofty one. I don't want to live with you. I don't want to be near you. I would rather live in the swaller of the prodigal son. And you can do that while sitting in a church service. I promise you, he's not fooled. But there's hope when you want to get it right. Hey, let's do Ezekiel 43 now. we got to hand him out. Who wants a few scriptures? Uh, Paulie, you get Ezekiel 43, 6 through 9. Uh, Rob, you get Zechariah 2, 10 through 11. Through 12, and you're going to get interrupted after 11. And then, uh, Brandon, you get Zechariah 8, verse 3. This is going to get so good. Amen. All right, Ezekiel 43, verse 6 through 9. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. He said to me, 
Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. Where I will shikan among them forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my holy name by their religious prostitution and by the corpses of their kings at their high places. Whenever they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, they were defiling my holy name by the detestable acts they committed. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. And isn't our God a good God? I mean, he's saying, look, there's a problem. There's all kinds of yucky things in the land, but I'm still going to dwell amongst them forever. You know what that is? That is a determined father who is going to work with his sons. He is going to shikan with his sons forever. And you can't take that shikan away from those sons. And he is going to make them holy. First and foremost for the Jewish people and then for the Gentiles that come into the family. Nobody's going to take that shikan from them. He says, I will shikan forever. He's going to clean them up. His promises did not fail. He will make them holy so that they may dwell with him in the way of life, and in the locality where he dwells. They're going to dwell with him forever in Jerusalem. And guess what? You will too, because he will not fail you either. Hey, just on a side note, I want to read to you just a short slide that some hasn't, con- most haven't considered, but this is beautiful. This is a passage out of the Mishnah from Sanhedrin 98a. And this is about the Messiah returning to earth. Would you like to know that the Jews are waiting for the Messiah to return to earth? Well, look at this. It says, Rabbi Eliezer said to him, but isn't it already stated if you will return Israel? This is talking about Israel returning to the Messiah. Then it says, indicating that redemption is contingent upon repentance. There are works and works and works that the Jews have written that say Messiah will not come to Israel unless Israel repents. They know from Ezekiel 43 that he will not shikan among them until they are holy. But look at this. The Gemara asks, what is the meaning of the phrase? Nor was there peace. They're saying, look, there was not peace in the first century because Israel didn't repent. But you know what happened. Jesus did come and he's going to come again. And Shmuel says it means that the Messiah will not come until all the prices are equal. He's saying, look, he will come. But we have to be holy first. Well, you want to know something extraordinary? The Jewish people today, you can go there to Jerusalem, and they are at the place where God's name dwells, and they are praying for repentance so that it can come back and dwell amongst them. You want to know how that's going to happen? It's going to happen when we as Gentiles learn to repent better than them. When we as Gentiles show them that we can repent with earnestness and that he will fill us with a permanent dwelling. That's how you make Israel envious. And repentance is everything. Hey, do you want Revelation 21? Yes. Repentance is the answer. Who's got Zechariah 2, 10 through 13? Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day, and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Pause there for me. Listen. I will live. Yet again, Shekhan. I will live. Yet again, Shekhan. This is like a father saying to a wayward son, 
I'm going to come and we are going to dwell together. Yeah. You will be holy. Yes. If I have to whip you, if I have to hug you and pray for you, you're going to be holy. He brought the nation into existence and he will bring it to its completion. Yeah. Go read Zechariah 14 and you will see the day that Israel will repent just like Justin was reading about. Yeah. In the meantime, we are setting an example. We are making them envious when we live as a holy people and rise to our fullest potential. Come on. Do you notice in verse 11 it says many nations will be joined. Look, this is a marker of the end times when men that are of Gentile origin are streaming to Israel, streaming to Christ, and he's saying it's going to happen. You know what else this is foreshadowing? The end of Psalm 82 where we've judged the gods of this world, and the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, arise and inherit the nations, for they are yours. Amen. God will have them. He will have all three parts of man, all three parts of his dwelling, and he will have it in his fullness once he has made it holy. We have the choice of participating in that now. Hey, read verse 12, and Justin's going to tell us about this. Man, he will again choose Jerusalem. Keep reading. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The truth is, he's never forsaken Jerusalem. What he's saying here is that I spoke and said that I will shikon there forever, and I fully intend to make that promise good. He will again choose Jerusalem. He will again shikon there, and that is Revelation 21 that we're all waiting for. What I love the most, it says... Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He has roused himself from where he dwells in the heavens, and he's coming down to make the men holy and shikan there forever. That's exciting tonight. Are you roused tonight? Man, God is going to make his tabernacle amongst us. As we go to Zechariah 8, 3, do you think that the God of all creation is passionate about holiness? Yeah. Yeah. He is so passionate about it that he is going to arise, that he will rouse himself, that every nation will see his holiness and will be confronted with a choice. Saints, we need to match our Father's intensity. We need to match our Father's intensity this evening. It's not an onset that he treats lightly. His holiness is deeply, deeply important. So much so that it's his defining attribute, and it should be the defining attribute of his sons and daughters in this house. Who has Zechariah 8.3? This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Man, this is in the book of Zechariah. At the very end, when God is shikoning on the earth, and all the nations are coming. You see, this is not... This is for the Jews primarily, but all nations will take part. God is shikoning on the earth through the tent of David, through what the church is doing, but he's doing that to make everyone on earth holy. Come on. That is his intention. Like Judah said, holiness is serious. For one sin, God kicked out Adam and Eve in the garden. One sin. Wasn't a week of sin. It was one sin. He's serious about it, but he's also a father who will dwell with us to make us holy because he wants to dwell with us all mankind will come not just coming to a holy place but becoming the holy place they won't just be coming to a temple they will be the temple as they meet together 
They are becoming the people, the way of life, and they are becoming people he can dwell with. That is the process we're in now. Daily repentance, daily earnestness, so we are becoming people that he can merge with. God desires to dwell permanently in a place surrounded by his holy people. He has already started in his Mishkan a long time ago, and he wants to continue the process in you tonight. Amen. Will you stand up and say, I'm going to continue that process? Yes. Yes. Amen. All right. Now, as we pick up in seven, we are going to pick up a lightning kind of face. I need you to be with me. I need you to interact with me. Do you understand what Solomon is asking for now? He's not asking just to feel the presence of God. He's asking for the embodied holiness of God to descend upon his people. I want the embodied holiness of God to be in this room tonight. Brother Lintonius, verse 7 and 8 for us. Saints, saints, it is true that he had it in his heart, but that is not what the Hebrew text says. You read it in the Mesoric, it was with him. The idea, the concept is that it was always with him. That it was something that was on David that he carried when he was fighting a war trying to establish his people. When he was putting sin to death, it was always because he wanted a permanent dwelling of God with men. It wasn't a random idea. He didn't wake up after having a dream and say, hey, I'd like to build a temple. It was with him wherever he went. Hey, did you notice that he said it was good? God affirmed it. This is good in the same way that Genesis is good. Where we're speaking about God's creation when it was in right order. When sin was not upon it. And God himself said that his work was good. That is God's affirmation using the same word about David carrying that with him. We want you to carry that desire with you tonight. David wanted to build the place where God's name would shakan. And this built into him a kind of character that God's name could dwell on. Have you ever wondered why David does not hesitate in the face of repentance? Does not flinch in the fact of sacrifice? Maybe because he understood what that presence of God was really like. Listen, if you, if me, if we really understand what that dwelling of God is like, you won't flinch anymore. You won't continue to calculate the cost prior to doing what is right. You won't renegotiate with your Nabal traits prior to standing for God's will. When you understand what David understood, you will do whatever it takes to see it done. Even if that means cutting away something in your own heart and in your own flesh. See, this is what after an earnest desire in his heart produced. We want you to have an earnest desire in your heart that produces a life like David and Solomon, that you might see these things descend upon the earth. Brother Linton, 9 through 13 for me. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and I now sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord. For the what? The name of the Lord. For the name of the Lord. The God of Israel. There I have placed the ark, which is in the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. 
and they placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands for the for them. Uh, this is such a beautiful passage that we cannot overstate this. Solomon is about to pray what we think is one of the most extraordinary prayers in the Bible. I know you go to a Christian bookstore and they'll tell you the prayer of Jabez is the most extraordinary prayer in the Bible, but they are wrong. <laughs> After everything that you just heard about the Shekan becoming a permanent place, about us becoming a permanent place, how Jesus became a permanent place, how God wants us to be formed in holiness so that he can dwell with us. Solomon is about, along those lines, he is about to pray the most extraordinary prayer. And you want to know what 99% of that prayer is about? Repentance. How are we going to be formed into a holy temple so that he can dwell with us? It's repentance. And Solomon's got that. But before he does, you know what he does? That I think is just extraordinary and beautiful. Read verse 12 again, Linton. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. He's standing in front of the whole assembly of Israel. And he spreads out his hands. Now you know he's about to pray, but maybe he was worshiping for a bit. I don't know. But he's standing in front of the whole assembly. There's something about leaders that they don't go into the behind the curtain and they begin to pray where no one can see them. Leaders stand in front of the whole assembly and they do what? They kneel. They kneel and they pray to the Lord what is on their heart. Solomon is kneeling before the Lord and he's about to pray a tremendous prayer of repentance. Man, to do that rightly, leaders do not go behind closed doors and pray repentance. Leaders stand in front of the assembly, in front of everyone, and they lift up their hands to heaven and then they kneel and begin to pray to the Lord. Man, you want to be, who wants to be a leader? It's one thing to get up here and stand and preach. It's one thing to get up here and want to give a good word. It's one thing to sit down with the pastors and talk about all the good things in your life that are going on. But real leaders are forged in the times where you are honest and open in front of the whole congregation. Where you really actually say, I've got darkness in my heart and I need to get it out. I need to repent and I want to do this first so you can see how I get it right. That's what it means to show your progress is repentance. If you only want to show your progress in the good things that are happening and not the things that you got wrong, that's not really showing your progress. And that's not how you become a leader. Solomon here is getting it right. Justin, that's too good to move on at the moment. (laughs) He stands on a bronze platform and a crowd. What do men in this world build stages for? So that you can look at me and look at me and see how awesome I am. He builds a bronze platform, the king of Israel. And then he physically, as well as verbally, abases himself and begins to pray a prayer of repentance. You wonder why God answered? You want to see him move in your life? Exalt you coming to him and being made holy. Listen, we define repentance in our mind in such ways that are unbiblical. The act of changing your character, of changing the way that you walk, You are becoming more holy in that moment. It's time that we get rid of these fearful, wicked, worldly ideas about repentance. Oh, I'm just taking my licks. I'm just doing what I got to do to get back to normal. No, he's doing what it takes for his people to be holy and for him to be holy. Is there a man of God in this house that is willing to rise to that? Yes. Yes. 
Before we get into it, I got one more. You know where you start to get this right? I have never seen a more humble group of men than our pastors and leaders. I have never sat down with men who are so willing to just share what is going on inside their hearts, whether good or bad. I have never sat down with men who are so open with, yeah, no, I'm a wicked human being and this is what my thought was, but the Lord really changed me and I got it right. You know where you can start? By returning the favor to them. That's a good word. Man, Paul prayed. He said, look, we have not withheld our affections to you, and we pray that you would open up your hearts wide to us as well. Look, maybe you have a fear of standing up in front of the whole church and just airing out what what you've got wrong. But God has given you a good place to start, and that is with your pastors. Man, do not withhold the things in your heart from them. If you really are having a problem or an offense or you're struggling with a sin, just tell them. Just say, man, I've got this in my heart, man, and I'm trying to let it go. And I promise you, you will see victory. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. Meditate on that. Hey, what's verse 14 say? O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You will keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Man, you will keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly. Remember we said it's not just a location. It's about a people who are trying to shikan and continuing in holiness. Remember, the dwelling is eternal. The the dwelling that God is building is eternal. It is His name, but we, we are not eternal. If we do not continue in the eternal way of life that's been handed down to us, then we will not continue into that eternal dwelling He's providing. The way of life must be walked in. It makes us able to stand in His dwelling and be His dwelling. That way of life is how we shikan. That is discipleship. He will make you holy if you walk in His ways. And when I say walk in His ways, I mean the ways that your fathers have prescribed in this house. That is how you continue on to that dwelling place. Amen. Read verse 15, Linton. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth, you have promised, and with your hand, you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Judah shared on this earlier. Solomon is saying, you've kept your promise to my servant, uh, to your servant David, my father, and with your hand you have fulfilled it. Well, whose hand was it? He's saying it's God's hand, but it's Solomon's hands who are working. But really, it's the foreman's hands that are working. And for the most part, really, it's the Gentile worker's hands. But Solomon attributes it all to God's hand. Amen. You know what that really tells us? You can only see God's hand at work in your life if you can see what your hands have done. If you're waiting around and say, I'm waiting for the hand of the Lord, and yet your hands are not going to work, you're never going to see the hand of the Lord. (laughs) Most of the time when you look back and you say, man, I went through some trials, but I saw the hand of God in them. You also look side by side and you see that your hands had to go to work too also, right? Yes. If you do not see God's hand at work through your life, it's because your hands are not keeping busy. Man, that is a good word. God will work in you as long as you are willing to go to work. Verse 16, brother. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done Saints, Solomon's going to say it, and we know good and well it's not possible for those sons to go forever without failing to keep a part of the law. Repentance, turning around, 
Changing their way of life and becoming more holy is necessary. This is similar to the requirements for remaining in the land itself, but it's specific to David and his sons. Hey, pick up in 17 and 18. We're going to see this continue to build. Oh, come on. The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I built? Yeah, but you know the answer, LCM. Yeah. Will God really dwell with men? Yes! yes! But only when both the dwelling and the people merge in holiness. Amen. That is the only time that God will dwell on earth. It depends on us to walk in holiness and repent with earnestness. Hey, what's verse 19 through 20? Then give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Oh, come on. Oh, Lord, my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place which you have said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Saints, the servant that he is saying, hear my prayer, that's Solomon. He is crying out. He is pleading. Doesn't seem very concerned with how he sounds while he's doing it. He knows what they need. And he's saying day or night, anytime, toward this place, the place where his name dwells, the place where his holiness dwells, that if people might humble themselves and pray and reach out to the holiness of God, that he would respond. Tell me that's not a prayer we need in our lives. Linton, 21 through 23. Hear the supplications of your servants and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hey, what place? This place. This place. Okay. Keep going. Your dwelling place. Man, our God is such a good God. You're going to start seeing specific areas where Solomon's saying, hey, if this happens and they pray towards this place, forgive them. Man, what a good God that he established a place where you could pray and take oaths towards the living God. What would it be like if you couldn't pray to him? What would it be like if you couldn't take an oath in his name? But he made a permanent place where you can pray and take oaths. He also had a permanent place to render justice. And thank God he did. If someone came and stole something from you, he had a permanent place that you could pray towards where you would ensure that you would have justice and the guilty would be punished. That's a good thing, isn't it? You don't want someone breaking into your house and them not get punished, do you? On the other hand, you better not be the one breaking in. Thank God there's a permanent place so I don't have to worry about people breaking in. This is what we call a father taking care of his children. He's taking care of his children by putting a permanent place where he can render justice between brothers. That's good news, isn't it? Who's got 24 through 25? When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they sinned against you, and when they turn back to confess your name... Pause there for just a moment. Notice he says, when your people have been defeated... By an enemy because they have sinned. He doesn't say if. He says when. Yeah. Keep reading. Praying and making supplication before you in this temple. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave them and their fathers. Saints, this is a prayer, but it's a bit of a prophetic prayer. This is more than just a prayer of repentance that you see in the Bible often of things that have happened in the past. Yeah, anybody can pray about that. He is a man that has been endowed with God's wisdom and he's praying for what he knows they will need. 
Much like a father looking at his son, praying that God might give him what he needs. Sometimes that's dependency. Sometimes that's yeah. difficulty. But that holiness might be the result. Yeah. This is fatherly insight from Solomon. Yeah. Remember, he's not the boy anymore. He's built the temple. He's the father of Israel. Yeah. 26 and 27. Oh, come on, read that one more time, Linton. Teach them the right way to live. And when he's inviting, begging for, asking God to dwell, and in his prayer he's saying, pray towards this place that he dwells, so that they might have the permanent, eternal presence of God in the way of life that is found inside of it. He's praying that they might have what they need to succeed in holiness. Amen. That's our prayer for you tonight. Yeah. Brother Linton, 28 through 29, or 31. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of the cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people in Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains, and spreading out his hands towards this temple, Man, this is just getting better and better. Yeah. I mean, you have to ask yourself, before the temple existed, what did you do if there was a plague? I mean, Aaron had to go out there and bring an answer and stop the plague. An incense. <laughs> Censor, sorry, to stop the plague. But now that there's a temple, there is a permanent place that the Father is providing to take care of all of these issues. Man. This is the permanent place making the men holy. He's listing every single thing that happens, and he's saying, look, if this comes into your life, there's a permanent place, and that will make you holy. If this comes into your life, there's a permanent place for the healing of the land. And all you have to do is repent with earnestness. Thank God that there's a place where we can repent with earnestness. Yes. Now, I, that excites me. I'm seeing a few people fall asleep, and I have to wonder, are you happy there's a place that you can repent? Yes. Are you happy there's a chance that you can get it right? Yes. That is what God's Shekinah is doing among the people, is he's providing a place to get them right. His goal is for you and the land to be healed together. Amen. Why? So he can dwell in both at the same time. Come on. Do you want him to dwell amongst you? Yeah. He's providing a place you can pray to. What's, who's, oh, Linton, Deuteronomy 30, verse 32 and verse 33. Who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Man, this process was working in the Israelites so much, they had a place where they could get right that even the foreigner heard about. Amen. It wasn't just bringing up in a geological or a geographical situation. It was a place that went out into all the world because they saw the people getting right. Amen. Man, read that again, verse 32. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your, people, your own people Israel. And may, and may 
know that this house I have built bears your name. Oh, come on. See, this permanent place that, that God was shikaning, that he was setting as a mishkan for his shikan name. This place was building holiness in the people, and it was building so much holiness that even the foreigners heard about it, and they could come there and do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Man, that is good news, isn't it? Yes. A permanent place for repentance for the world. It says at the end of that section, so that, the, that they can know his name. How thankful, for, how thankful are you to know his name? You know his name because you prayed to that same place that they prayed to, and you learned about repentance and earnestness, which leads to holiness. Hey, this reminds us of Isaiah 56, 4 through 7. We're going to put it on the screen and Judah's going to read it. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They will not be cut off. Come on, this name, this place that God is setting as a shakan for his name, it's a place that is permanent and that all can repent and hold fast. It doesn't matter if you're a eunuch. It doesn't matter if you have everything going for you. Everybody has the opportunity to repent. Man, you can be blind. You can have all your arms cut off. You cannot have any legs, but you still have a chance to repent and hold fast to the living God. There is nobody who who has an excuse. There is no one. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Hey, where is he going to do that? On his holy mountain. And he's going to give them joy in his house of prayer. Man, that permanent place. That place you come to where holiness is and you want it so you repent earnestly. Man, he is going to bring you, if you repent earnestly, to that permanent place. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God desired to dwell amongst men so that he can make them holy. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing that the entire sin of the world did not cause God from ceasing to dwell on the earth. He sent the tabernacle. He sent his temple. Then he sent the living temple, Jesus Christ. And he is all doing that because he wants to make Israel and the nations holy. That is his work on the earth. Did we hand out Zechariah 8 verse 20? Just read it for me. I'll read it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. By the way, this is foreshadowing the last days. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. Where are they going to come? To his dwelling place. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Oh, come on, man. We read earlier in Isaiah 56 that the eunuchs that served him would have a name on the walls of his temple. Saints, this is hinting at something. This is Peter like living stones that would be built into something. Many nations are going to come. Powerful nations. Those that were once enemies of the gospel will be turned to Jesus Christ. That will be redeemed. That captives will be set free. They will come from the fears. 
but it comes through the holiness of God being manifest inside of us. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are or what your circumstances are. Prayer towards His holiness, towards the representation of His name, to His eternal dwelling, to His way of life, is your answer. Brother Lynch, will you get verse 23 for me? This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Listen, something has happened at this point in Israel. What do you think it is? It's that the holiness of God has been made manifest in his people. And it has caused those around to ask about the hope that they have. If you find that the vast majority of your witnessing is you constantly running your mouth and you being offensive, perhaps you're not holy enough. They come to them and ask because they want to know more about the holy God that has made them holy. I want the gospel to break out in your life. I want it to break out in every area for you to be a testimony to a permanent dwelling, a way of life, a kind of holiness that is not of this earth, that is not Adam-like, but is like the second Adam. You will know that that is the case when your life looks like what God says is going to happen to Israel when He purifies His people. When we purify our lives, we become the hope of the nations. The path to godly sorrow is not one that can be negotiated. It's not one that we can cut cost on. It's not one that we can debate with Nabal. If you actually want to make an impact on this earth, if you want to dwell with God, then we must become holy saints. And we must have the same eagerness for holiness that He has. Because it's an unceasing, abiding passion that He has. It is a zeal for His house. And you are becoming His house. Pride, fear, money, time, whatever it is that is affecting your sacrifice, affecting your earnestness, It must go away. You can't dwell with him and hold on to him. And you surely will not affect the world around you. You'll go 20 years and not see somebody actually born again. Mm -hmm. Definitely not see them discipled. It is not possible for us to enter into his dwelling without having first been made holy. And that shows up in the world around us. But the good news is he will make us holy and he wants to make us holy. In fact, he's speaking to this church, LCM. I want to make you holy for the work. Amen. You know, I heard a story one time of an evangelist in the 1700s. He was so concerned why people were not getting born again whenever he would preach to them. He would go around preaching. He would go around sharing the gospel, but people didn't get saved. And you want to know what God told him? If you would start repenting, people would get born again around you. Yeah. You know what he did? He started searching his heart. He started actually repenting. He started cleaning out the things that have been there for years. And you want to know what happened after that? He didn't go around preaching. He would be on a bus somewhere and people would just get born again because they felt the holiness that was on him. Man, when you repent, that is the most powerful witness that you can have. That's what happens to the people of Israel. When they repent, it's going to be a witness to the world that the God of Israel is dwelling among them. Man, we so often think that our presentation of the gospel is our strength. That is our togetherness, if you will. But that's because we have a wrong definition of repentance that we mentioned earlier. The story that Justin is illustrating ought to sink home for us. That your repentance in becoming holy 
is a statement to the world around that there is power found here. There's a way for you to become holy. If they never see you, repent, which is should be equated in your mind to being holy. They will not think that there is anything you have to give them. Listen, this whole world wants to present strong. And you're presenting as if you have everything together and constantly running your mouth is not helping anyone, I promise. Come on. How about you live a life of repentance that is visible to the lost? That will cause them to want something that they've never seen. Men who are being transformed, not conformed, like a living sacrifice that are becoming more. Listen, this is how we show our progress. God wants us to have this, not know it. He wants everyone in this room, man, woman, and child, to have this in your life. It is what we are called to, and it's what he's speaking to us about. And it's why we're learning about godly sorrow. Come on. 34 through 37, brother. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray toward you, pray to you toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name. Oh, man. give from heaven their prayer and their plea to hold their cause. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is not praying about being defeated. This is praying when you're doing the will of God. They are on a mission. They're at war because God has sent them wherever they go. That when they pray towards that holiness of God, that it would show up in their very soldiers. Saints, you're called to be son soldiers and servants. God will send his holy sons, his holy soldiers on missions. And he will uphold the cause of his holy servants. When they pray towards his holy temple, his holy way of life. Come on. Listen, if you want the power of God, it starts by us getting holy ourselves, by walking in it. And then he will send you to accomplish works upon the earth. The good works, in fact, you were prepared to do. The ones that the fivefold ministry are preparing you for, equipping you for. Yeah, I want to go on missions for the Lord and I want them to be successful. That is all based upon our relationship to his holy standard. Keep reading. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, mm. and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. Prophecy or prayer? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Prophetic prayer. Yes. Long before Daniel had insight and knew to pray so that they might return. Solomon knew this was going to happen and prayed for the steps to succeed in advance. And notice that it contains earnestness. That when their heart changes, they begin to pray towards your temple. Something in their hearts is changing in this moment and they want to go back to the holiness of God where his temple dwells. Then hear from heaven. Husbands, you want God to hear your prayer? You start with holiness in you. And you begin to create holiness everywhere inside of your household. Listen, this is like John 1. We're tabernacled among men and then it radiates outwards. This is like Sinai where the word of God came and then his holiness radiates outward. Here in Chronicles, this is happening. But it must also happen and show up in our lives. Every situation, everyone. This is the answer, the permanent dwelling of God, the permanent way of life, and the permanent holiness of God. You do not have a problem that cannot be fixed by turning to his permanent dwelling. You do not have anything in this world that will not be resolved by standing for him, by willing to dive into sacrifice, 
holiness or die trying? Yeah. Somebody say holiness, holiness. or die trying. We're going to make it more than just an axiom and a way of life for a few men. We're going to make it the beating passion of every man in this room. Amen. Come on. Verse 38 through 39. Say, say, pray towards the land. Pray towards the land. Keep going. Toward the city. Toward the city. Toward the city. Keep going. You have chosen and toward the temple. And toward the temple. Toward the temple. Keep going. I have built for your name and bid from heaven your dwelling place. Hear their prayer and then please and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Have you noticed how many times throughout this chapter? It has been said, pray towards this place. And God will hear from heaven. Have you you noticed that? Many times he's saying, Lord, if they pray towards this place, you will hear from heaven. But Solomon's prayer ends with, if they pray towards the land, toward the city, and toward the temple. At this point, God had shikanned and all the places promised to Abraham, David, and Solomon. God had shikhaned in the land. He had shikhaned in the city. And he had shikhaned in the temple. But now he's focused on shikhaning in the people as they pray toward the place his name dwells. Now we asked ourselves, what does it mean to pray towards the place? I mean, do we, like, when we pray... Like, we're really in some need and we're in trouble. My car broke down, so I need to get out of my car and face Jerusalem and pray. It's a globe. How does that work? Or maybe some get misled like the Muslims and say you got to pray, pray towards Mecca, but I don't want to get into that. What does it mean to pray towards this place? Well, we have an answer for you, and it's in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles, and this is going to get real good. So everybody say real good. Real good. Are you enjoying learning how to repent? Yes. Man, it's going to get better. Lentonius, our faithful reader of the scroll, would you mind picking up with us in Jonah chapter 2? We're going to go verse by verse together. Oh, yeah. Say Shekhan when you are dwelling on the verse. Ah. All right. All right, all right. Where did he pray from? It's on the I want you to picture that for a moment. Yeah. We're sitting in acid, being moved all around, all over the place. <laughs> From within the fish, this is taking place. We read about this with the pastors a little while ago. Hey, what's verse 2 say? And 3. In my dread, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depth of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep. Very hard to hey, does that sound earnest to y'all? Yeah. yeah. It sounds earnest to me. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept up. Man, he's praying to the Lord. And he's saying, you're the one who put me here. He's not saying, Lord, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I'm in this terrible situation that I'm in. He's honestly and earnestly praying, you are the one that put me there. Man, God will hurl you into distress so that you can cry out to him, right? Man, sometimes God will put you in a fish so that you can start praying towards the temple. Hey, what's verse 4 say? I said, I have been banished from your sight, that I will look again 
Come on, saints. It's a little verse, but there are three things I want you to gain from this. He's inside a fish. He's under the waves. He has no idea what is up and what is down. There is no direction. There is no compass inside of this. His heart, his mind, his will and emotions are praying towards the temple. It's almost like praying through the tabernacle might mean something. Number two, he is recognizing the judgment of God on his life and he is stating it. An inability to recognize that God has punished you, that God has judged you, or that he has chastised you, and constantly relegating it to circumstances or difficulties will ensure that you stay in the whale and never accomplish your mission. We must reckon ourselves with the things that God has brought in our lives to chasten us. You don't get to look at his correction and pretend that it's something else. He will repeat the process and rinse until you get it. Third thing, earnestness. Earnestness combined with faith. He is earnestly praying, but he's also not praying as a man who does not believe that God will hear him. Come on. Husbands, work through Psalm 4 with me in your mind. I know that you hear me, my Lord. I'm laying my thoughts and emotions down. I want to offer right sacrifices. Help me do it. You need to be earnest and you need to have faith in the situation that you're in. You can say courage if you would like. You can say trust if you would like. When you have experienced the judgment of God, turn your face back towards the temple. Don't hide it. We do not hide our face from our Father and expect things to happen. But we turn with earnestness and faith and expect that He will hear us. Hey, Linton, help us out with 5 through 7. Wait, seaweed was wrapped around his head, so even if he had a compass, he couldn't see it. <laughs> to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit. Now, okay. had God brought his life up already? No, but he's speaking in faith because he knows what he's praying here. Now, look what he says in verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you for your holy temple. Jonah is inside of a whale, and yet he is praying to the place that Solomon prayed that they would always pray to. And yet, to him being in the whale, what direction was he praying? Jonah wasn't simply facing north, south, east, or west. He was directing his heart and mind toward the specific place where God's name, Shekan. He was directing his heart and mind towards the tabernacle, He was directing his heart and mind towards the temple. He was literally praying the tabernacle. Oh man, y'all didn't get that. He was praying the tabernacle. This is not just a revelation your pastors gave you. Jonah did it. Jonah was directing his heart and mind towards God's holy temple. And he's saying, you're shakotting in there. How do I get in there? I've got to go to the bronze altar first. I've got to be washed in your word. I've got to be surrounded by your spirit. I've got to have the bread of your presence. I've got to offer up incense so I can enter into that veil. Man, this is not just something you do in a religious fashion. You don't just go into your car and pray step by step through the temple. You have got to direct yourself towards that. When you are praying through the tabernacle, you have got to be going to the bronze altar, man, and you have got to be doing it earnestly, asking the Lord to seek his heart, seek your heart. This is what Jonah was doing inside of a fish. He was praying his mind into the tabernacle. And guess what? When he got into the Holy of Holies right in that fish, 
God answered him. When he reached that place that we all want to get into, God answered him. This is true repentance that started in earnestness, starting at the gates of praise in his heart and coming to the bronze altar. Man, but look at what verse 8 says. He knows something is true about this. He knows that when some people are tempted to pray the tabernacle, something else is there that needs to be rooted out. Listen, we are going to finish on time. It's worth noting on another night that when the scripture says Jesus himself is interceding on our behalf, He's not sitting somewhere. He's walking through the things that are in the heavens that his father made. It is our job to reflect him. It's not just a formula. It's a formula that God designed that our heart, mind, will, and emotions, every part of our being has to interact with. And that skipping a step or doing one uh, half-heartedly will not get you into the Holy of Holies. But we are becoming a holy people this evening. As we're becoming holy people this evening, let's read about verse 8 and the things we're going to get rid of. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be there. We are not going to cling to our pride in this house. We are not going to cling to our self-exaltation, our feeling of mastery over a subject, or mastery over the word. I want to look like I know the scriptures. That is not something that is going to deprive this house of the grace that can and will be ours. Hey, get verse 9 for me. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. But I have vowed I will make come on. salvation come from the Lord. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, I'm going to offer right sacrifices, and I'm going to keep my vows to the living God, because salvation does come from you. Amen. It's a prayer offered in earnestness and faith. He knows that God will give him salvation as he does this. Is anybody in this room able to offer a prayer of earnestness and faith? Then salvation will come to you. It is a certainty. It is our job to reconcile our hearts with his, but it is a surety that he will come, and he will come. Brother Linton, verse 40, then 41. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. This is the character of the God that we serve. One whose eyes are open and his ears are attentive. Solomon understood what it was to be a son, so he rightly related to his father. Verse 41. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Arise, O Lord, arise, and come to your resting place, the place where you're going to dwell with us as you make us holy. You and the ark of your might. Saints, it's the Ark of the Testimony. It's the Ark of the Covenant. But for a holy people, it's the Ark of His might. Come on. We want you to participate in the manifest presence of God's holiness and His might alongside you. Verse 42. May your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love you have promised to David, your servant. Saints. He is a covenant-keeping God, and he is a faithful God. It's time that we learn to be a faithful people. We want to read a few scriptures to you in closing with our last four or five minutes about his character. And just to be honest, we're friends, we're family. They're scriptures that are personal to us. That like over the last few days, as we're trying to do what the pastors are leading us to do, as we're trying to become holy as God is holy, These are things that are interacting with our soul and our hope is that it will bless you as well. 
You heard me quote it a few nights ago. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Saints, these descriptions are about the Shekan. They're about the character of God. They're about his name. They're about his dwelling place. And he says, because he loves me, I'm going to intercede on his behalf. John 14 defines love as obedience. Obedience that shows up in our heart, mind, will, and emotions and our deeds. Because we love him, he will intercede on your behalf. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Saints, we don't have time to go into it. But in the LXX, I will be with him in trouble is a little different. It's more like I am with him in trouble and experiencing the affliction alongside him. Why? Because he loves me and he's my son. Our God is not one that is distant from you. Not one that is far away. Not one that is unloving. He is one that is dying to bring you into him. Quite literally died for you to be holy. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We want you to relate rightly to the holiness of God and him as a father and be able to experience his exaltation tonight. Galatians 5, 1 through verse 2. On the screen for you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Man, that freedom is a good thing, isn't it? Yes. Yes. The end of the chapter said, I love this. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. Man, you rejoice when you know you're being set free. That is the best kind of feeling you can ever have. In fact, it was so good of a feeling that David praised this in Psalm 51 when he sinned with Bathsheba. He said, Lord, restore me to the joy of my salvation. Because there's a joy there when you know that you're being clean that surpasses all other joy. When you know that you are free, when you know that Christ has set you free, when you know you're being made holy, there is a joy that comes there and nothing can take it away from you. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It doesn't sound like we need to say that, and yet we do. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we, we are burdened by a yoke of slavery and we don't know why. And we have to be reminded that this is not why Christ died for you. He died that so you could walk in freedom. And the kind of joy that you get from being made clean in repentance and earnestness. The kind of dancing you have when you know that he's changing you. That is what Christ saved you to. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And it's so easy to be burdened by that yoke. You know, tonight I'm tired of hearing about insecurities. I am tired of masking these things by pretty little words like, You know, I I just want to use worldly wisdom here. Or man, I I just, you know, I I want to become more mature. I'm just immature. Or man, I'm struggling with my eyes a little bit. Or man, I just just can't open up to the pastors. I just can't connect as much. Let's just call it what it is. It's not insecurity. It's not immaturity. It is a lack of holiness. Slavery. It is a lack of holiness in your life. When you have holiness coursing through your veins, it starts to produce those things in you. Do not let yourself be burdened by a yoke of slavery. If there is any area in your life that you feel burdened by, you need to get right in it. 
Because God is making you into His temple and one day you're going to merge as the bride with that city that's coming down and it will be permanent. But that process is happening now. Verse 2 says, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you, you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. We're obviously not dealing with circumcision tonight. What we are dealing to is the things that try to get added on to the pure sacrifice that Christ made for you. The things that try to come in and add or take away to that sacrifice. It's time to get back down to the Holy Spirit root in us and go down to that pureness that allows us to enter into God's holy mountain. Amen. Amen. Look, our final scripture in closing. 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17. Live as free men. Live in it. Don't dream about it. Live in it. Live free from fear. Live in the glory that God made you to be. We are made in His image. We are made to be warriors. We are made to be priests. We are made to be husbands. And we are made to be holy. Live in it. It's freedom. It's joy. This other stuff is choking the life out of you. It's not worth it. The things that we've lived with so long have a way of keeping us from actually living. It gets so bad that you can't tell the difference anymore. Till you've actually emptied your heart. Till you've actually gotten free. Then you have a measure to test it by. But do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Listen. Oldest to the youngest. From every area all the way around in this room. Do not use your freedom. Your personal preferences. Do not use what God has given you as a cover up for evil. Hey, this is my conviction. Hey, this is my family standard. Hey, this is... What, how I feel about it. God has given you freedom to enjoy, to run in, to be all that you can be in Christ. Amen. Do not take something that is so precious and that is holy and use it as a cover-up for evil. Amen. It takes the name of God and causes it to be profaned and it kindles wrath instead of hope and compassion in Him. Show proper respect to everyone. You could redefine this as Show proper authority. Understand shalom. Walk in it wholeheartedly. Not just in your words, but in your heart and how you interact with men. Love the brotherhood of believers. Saints, it is not loving for us to conceal from each other and to maliciously talk about each other. Listen, you've got to get rid of slander. And you have to get rid of things that we're concealing in our own heart. How are we going to get right with the holy God when we're not actually right with each other? If you can sit in this house and go through an entire service and not be right with your brother, you cannot be right with the God who you cannot see. And it's not okay to be in his house and remain unholy. He will spit you out of his house. Do what you need to do to be right with the brotherhood of believers. Show real love. Fear God. Fear him and his holiness. Understand his character and the areas that you do not measure up so that you might be made holy. Honor the king. Honor the king of Israel. Honor the kings that lead us. Honor right authority in your life. And remember that our God is both a warrior and a father. And that he is here so that we might dwell with him. Solomon's prayer is beautiful. It's lengthy. It's specific. It's prophetic. It's almost like God had shown him what they needed. But it simply could be summed up in verse 1. 
Lord, will you in that cloud come dwell with us? It's a little bit like praying, Lord, change me. Lord, make me like you. Lord, envelop me, swallow me up in you. I'm eager, I'm earnest. Help me, Lord. You don't need a beautiful prayer. You don't need some kind of long list of things to do. You need an eagerness that comes from God, that his presence and its fullness might dwell with you this evening. Next week, we're going to see how God answers prayers like this. In the meantime, I would like to practice it all seven days in between. I want to see the presence of God show up with my wife, my children, with my brothers and their families. I want to learn to walk in this. We're asking you as family not to accept how things have been in the past, but to respond to the words that have come through leaders in this body and through the pastors by the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're just microphones for what God wants to do with you. Come on. Let's pray.